0: I am so excited to be here today with Glenn. We haven't seen each other for quite a while. And uh, as you know, Glenn is is a guy who's working in physics and uh, computer science and mathematics, and he's got all sorts of ideas. And today we're going to tackle Gödel and um, the halting problem and undecidability. And uh, look at it a little bit through the lens of Yosha Bach and see what we can learn from that and... uh, find our way forward, I think it's going to be a very interesting conversation because I have a lot to learn, so I will have a lot of questions.
1: And I'm going to try and explain it the best I can, and, but uh, we have to go slow. My, my, my mathematician wife, I've tried to explain it to her, and she said she felt like she was on a merry-go-round that spun so fast she flew off. <laughs> so we'll have to take it step by step and and, and really chew on things and not expect to understand everything uh, first pass.
0: Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I have certainly found that when I start listening to people that I, if I try to understand everything they say, I'd be interrupting every three minutes. So, OK, so you wanted to start with a little clip from No Shabak.
1: Right. Yeah, the clip you sent me and I, I saw it and it was just like, yes, <laughs> Finally, somebody gets it. So I want to use that as, as the launch uh, point for today.
0: Okay, so I'm going to start it at this point here um, where he's responding to something that Donald Hoffman said.
2: Thank you. Um, you went very far and wide and try to be a little bit more concise. Let's start out with Goodell. Good's proof had a very profound and uh, not necessarily very positive influence on philosophy and uh, basically lukas and others in philosophy opened up a tradition that uh, where the underlying current is that what good has shown is that mathematics is impotent to describe reality and therefore reality can only be described by people who don't really know mathematics, that is philosophers. (laughs) So philosophers like that intuition. (laughs) But it implies that there is something beyond mathematics that allows you to make sense of things that assign truth. And uh, slightly deeper, uh, when you say that uh, you like computation and you value it and so on, and you see its limits, it implies that you see what comes beyond these limits and you're using that thing beyond the limits to think. And I don't think that you are. Everything in my own mind that I can observe, when I observe myself perceiving, when I perceive myself um, reflecting, when I perceive myself reasoning is computational. It means that I go from state to state in a somewhat deterministic way. The random parts are just deleting bits that I computed before, so I have to do it again. The randomness and determinism doesn't help me. So the part of my mind that is relevant to my thinking is fundamentally computational. What Gödel discovered, and is often misunderstood, and also by Gödel himself, is is a very important thing. What Gödel has discovered is not that truth is deeper than proof. That was, in some sense, the suspicion by which which he started with. He knew that, in his view, that truth is platonic, that things can be true or not, regardless of whether we find out, or whether it can be found out. And he hoped to find a notion of truth, uh, of proof that could reach truth. And he found that it couldn't. And he found this in a devastating way. And he drew the conclusion that there is truth that cannot be found with mathematics. And the opposite is true. There is no deeper notion of truth than proof. You see, uh, perception cannot be true or false. Perception just is. Physics, physical events out there in the universe Cannot be true or false. They just are. A pattern that you observe is not true or false. It just is. Right? You could be erroneously thinking that you're perceiving a pattern when you don't, because you're suffering from false memory or a delusion or whatever that makes your thinking or perception inconsistent. But the pattern itself is not true hmm. or false. It's an interpretation that can be true or false. And the interpretation is has to be in a symbolic language to have the property that can be true or false, a perceptual interpretation by itself is not true or false, it just is. Right? So in order to be true or false, you need to have a language. And the language <laughs> needs to be defined in such a way that truths can be established. And the process of establishing truth is a computation. And there are two types of languages in which truths can be defined. And the language of classical mathematics is a stateless is language.
0: OK, yeah. So the last sentence there is important. Uh, The language of classical mathematics is a stateless language, because he goes on to talk about stateless and stateful. And that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. (laughs)
1: Okay, well, we'll touch on uh, that, too.
0: We'll get there, huh? Um, I think the main point that he's making here, and you can start wherever you want to in it. But I wanted to just highlight the thing that stuck out to me is that he says there is no deeper notion of truth than proof. So I hope you can help me understand what he means by that as you're talking about all the rest of
1: it. Um, I once heard a, a nice way to phrase it. Maybe this is a punchline. There's a covenant between truth and language. And we don't really see that until you understand what computation is computation is the connection between truth and language but to understand that statement you have to dive back into what computation is and if i have any crusade in life it's is to try and help people understand that what they think computation is is not what really it really is so that's kind of the punchline for this whole talk, but we'll start back to basics. When I first when saw that- When you
0: use the word language there, could you just refine what you mean by language?
1: Okay, we'll, we'll get there. Okay. So we got to okay. start. And there's a whole bunch of loose, thread, loose threads that come together in my mind, and I'm not quite certain about all of them. Um, a lot of the definitions people use in different fields are close, but not- Quite and and it gets confusing, so we need to just take it slow and easy. And I'll try multiple pathways. Okay. When I first proposed getting together and talking about girls theorem, I thought, well, I'll just go out and get my textbooks, and you know, I'll read up and I'll try and remember what it was all about, and I'll explain the math to you. And I think my brain is a little bit rusty after about 35 years since I had the class in math logic. So I thought, okay, well, the halting problem in computation is close to uh, Gödel's incompleteness theorem. It's uh, it's not all there, but it's pretty good. So I thought, well, if I can explain the halting problem, that will help understand Gödel's incompleteness. Because I think, It's my perception and my experience that people are reading far more into uh, girls' incompleteness than they should be, and the things that they should be seeing, there, they aren't. So then I started thinking about, okay, how do I explain the halting problem? And then that hit a roadblock because most of all the videos you see, they talk about a Turing machine reading a program and that's not the language you use in, in computation at all. And it's all of a sudden it started to sink in. That's one of the reasons I think people don't understand language, how important language is, is because we always use the term program. But computational systems don't run programs. They accept a language. And so there's an intimate connection between language and computation if you get into the theory of of this stuff, and if you try, if I tried to explain Turing machines in terms of programs, I wouldn't be able to talk about languages and the discussion dead ends there. So then I thought, okay, well, I need to talk about what languages are and formal languages and the purposes of of that. And then next thing I know, I was wandering back to Frege and, and some of the early work in formal languages and what people were thinking uh, and exactly what the halting problem is, is actually a paradox. It's, it's not like you've proved some um, concrete result. What you've shown is that to assume that the halting problem is, has a solution leads to a paradox. And then you stop there and you say, well, then you can't solve it. It's undecidable because um, to say it's decidable gives you a paradox. And it's always bothered me because I'm not sure that just because you've shown that there's a paradox, that does that really qualify as a proof? But then the funny thing happens in the world of computation and elsewhere. There's so many problems that turn out to be equivalent to the halting problem. And all you have to do is show that whatever problem you have, even a lot of simple things are uh, like rule 110. Is is a pattern in the cellular automata going to repeat? That's an undecidable question. So there's a whole notion of what do you mean by undecidable? And but it turns out does a pattern repeat in rule 110 is equivalent to the halting problem. So there you're done. You're just showing us undecidable.
0: Well, so, so while, while you're on that point right there about um the the things that are equivalent to the halting problem. When I sent you that email, I said the two things that popped into my head that seemed equivalent to the halting problem for the Mandelbrot, Mandelbrot set and, um, and what happens to these large language models when they're trying to run an alignment and it's it um, becomes what they call stable, is actually it, it, um, it finishes It's not the same. Finishing is not the same thing as halting, right? Right. When it comes to a conclusion and and it becomes stable and it stops at that conclusion, that's different than when it goes down this thing where it starts running over and over in its processing down all these weird rabbit holes. Mm -hmm. Is that actually when it's halting?
1: Well, we'll get to that.
0: (laughs) Okay. uh, but is the Mandelbrot set equivalent? That's what to the, I mean, is the Mandelbrot set equivalent to the halting problem?
1: I would, I would not say that. Um, the Mandelbrot, in fact, all of the fractal patterns. It's one equation that you have to keep solving. For every point you want to in, uh, inquire about, you have to solve the equation, and then you color or highlight that point. So. The that my
0: understanding of it was the reason I think this is important, and then I'll let you go on and I'll keep my mouth shut, is that the when you run that, when you keep iterating that formula in the Mandelbrot set, the parts that are outside the circle or whatever that shape is, are the things where it is not stable and the things that are inside are the things that are stable. And, and I thought that that's what the halting problem was talking about, is something that's stable, something that's not stable. Or is that a completely different thing?
1: I would yeah, I would say completely different at this point. Okay. You're going to confuse yourself if you try and bring it into the okay. discussion.
0: OK, I'll get off of that then. Mm-hmm. So you were back and you were saying that there are certain equivalents to the halting problem. Rule 110 is one of them.
1: That's just a simple one that I can recognize. There's there's a lot of them that come up that are so out there they wouldn't make any sense to anybody, um, but that's a simple one. But then what do you mean by decidable? And so in thinking about this talk, my brain just went all over the place um, of things to talk about. But what Turing did, or what was done, is you take your system and you create Um, a paradox and so that's how you got there and in some way that's what girdle did in in, the incompleteness theorem he created a paradox Um, and i'm not going to try and even go through the math but you end up in the same place it's not an actual proof you just show that something's a paradox and then you can show a lot of bunch of things are equivalent to that paradox, and now uh, it's incomplete. But what do you mean by undecidable? And I, I sent you a link, several links to some computer file YouTube videos. Yeah. That if you post that, I would suggest uh, it's a three part series on undecidability. And that would be a very good place for anyone interested to look at it. So, Let's just start with undecidability. Um, The first one, historically, that you could think of is um, Euclid's fifth postulate. That's the parallel line postulate. And it seems obvious that two parallel lines will never intersect. And for centuries, literally, people kept trying to prove that using the other parts of uh, Euclid's axioms. And they never could. And then one day someone asked the question, well, What, what if lines, parallel lines can intersect? What if they can't? And then you ended up with non-Euclidean geometry. So parallel lines on a sphere will intersect. And if you do parallel lines on a hyperbolic curved surface, which is basically a horse's saddle, um, they'll just keep going away. And so they showed that the fifth postulate is not decidable in terms of the, all the other axioms or postulates. So that's what it means to be undecidable in some sense it doesn't mean that you can't figure it out. It just means that within the formal language that you're working with, you can't get a solution. But you can always step outside of formal language and prove things or see things or change things. So that, that's partly one way to look at Gödel's incompleteness is that it suggests that a formal system will always be inadequate. There will always be things that you can't prove within it. But how do you know it's true if you can't prove it? That's that's the funny question that still nags me. <laughs> and, and I think people should hold on to that because it will pull you farther. So... The reason the fifth postulate finally really sunk in is when when um, special relativity happened, and then general relativity, and we realized that the universe is non-Euclidean, and so now we just accept the fact that well, obviously the fifth postulate is is undec- undecidable within the the earlier axioms of Euclid, but it doesn't mean you can't solve it. Is is that kind of making sense?
0: Well, yeah, I mean it seems to me. Within within Euclid's set of axioms, you can't prove you can't prove that it's true or false. Right. But once you step outside of it, you can prove that in, in non-Euclidean geometry, it's actually false.
1: Right. And so you okay. can take it either way. So it's
0: falsifiable, which would be Popper's thing, right?
1: Yeah, but you have to go to reality. You know, uh, you can't falsify it within the formal system. But if you go out and look at Mother Nature, experience. Mm-hmm. Yosher Bach was talking about perceptions not being true or false. They just are. We can step out of a formal system and look and see if things are. And that's another thing to hang on to when you're thinking about Girdle. girl. Um, another classic undecidable problem from classical mechanics is the three-body planetary problem. You know, you can solve exactly two planetary bodies in Newton's equations, fine. You put a third and a funny thing happens. It's still deterministic. You can still write down equations for motion. You can still solve them because that's how we send satellites and probes to all our planets as accurately as you want. Um, But sometimes you end up in a chaotic situation. You can't predict formally ahead of time just with equations, what's going to happen. And now you can ask this question, is the solar system stable? Is three uh, sun and two planets or something orbiting each other? Will it at some point in time fly off and just collapse or crash into each other? That turns out to be an undecidable problem, even with Newtonian mechanics. So, I'm thinking, you know, this whole notion of undecidability is something to meditate and, and think on. What it is it is you're doing, what you're saying is you can't solve within a formal system, within equations, can't tell you an answer. But somehow we're able to ask the question. And it's sort of like we've been gifted with a, a God's eye view of the universe sometimes, that we can step out and ask questions that are actually not even formally askable within a system. Um I don't know what to make of that. I still ponder that. I think about it when I'm uh, on my long heights and stuff. And so a lot any, of disc-
0: is there any analogy there with what Wolfram always calls computational irreducibility?
1: Exactly. Yeah, what what he's using there is when you're in formal mathematics, you know, you're seeing the same thing. You can't predict within the system with the formal rules, what certain behaviors are going to happen, but somehow we have the ability to ask questions that go outside of the formal system. But if if things weren't incomplete, that means we wouldn't have to step out. We could answer every single question within the formal system. At which point we wouldn't have to actually even exist because we would know the universe just formally by running the equations. That's one of the odd things I think about Girdle and that sort of notion of undecidability is that at some point you have to step out and perceive what the universe is. Formal systems by themselves can't answer all the questions. That's rather. I don't know, a positive statement in my mind, um, because if they could answer everything formally, we wouldn't have to be alive. A Boltzmann brain could experience the universe without ever existing.
0: Well, so this so, is one of the things that puzzled me, what Yoshi Bach said, that as he contemplates his own mental processes, whether he's perceiving or, you know, thinking, he says it's... It, in, he, as far as he can tell, it's always computational.
2: Right,
0: But that doesn't really make any sense because
1: <clears throat> Because you're uh, assuming- Because
0: if thinking is always computational and that makes it sound as though, then how could you ask a question that's outside the formal system? if If thinking is only computational?
1: Maybe only is the wrong word. <laughs> people always associate computation with formal systems. Computation doesn't have to be based on a formal system. Um, this is one of the interesting things that I've, I've noticed about in this process of, of trying to answer your question. And I really have to say, you ask good questions because you send me off on these journeys that I end up running into stuff and seeing things in ways I have never have before. Turing had a very strong mechanical sense. And I think von Neumann is in the same category. So when Turing, even though he was a mathematical genius, when he saw things, he saw things in a mechanical process. So a Turing machine is a mechanical instantiation of a a more formal mathematical logical thing and so that's why it's a little bit easier to grasp what turing did and i think von neumann had a good mechanical sense along with the mathematics because he could see how the mathematics would play out in computational in actual physical systems so okay my brain just (laughs) jumped out of gear on that one so I think that's one of the reasons why Turing machines often are a good reflection of, of more formal abstract mathematics that someone like Gödel did or Bertrand Russell or Frege or David Hilbert. Those are names that come up. Poincaré, I'm sure, did some work in, in, uh, along that line too. But to uh, get back, Computation always involves a physical process. And I think this is what people miss. Computation is actually a physics problem. And so computation is about the physical structure, which is making the choices. Now, the rule set that that physical structure runs on can be formal, in which case you get the kind of computers that we we see today running programs. But you don't have to give a computational structure, which is a physical thing governed by the laws of physics, a rule set based on formal languages or logic. You could give it one based on probabilities, which then you get the Markov chain, Markov processes. And so that's my curiosity is that Carl Friston's work with Markov blankets might actually be a fuzzy computational process he's looking at. And if I had the brain left, I would head on that direction. But you can also do computation over heuristic rule sets. And that's, you know, they're not formally, you know, Occam's razor is not a formal logical rule, but we use it when we make decisions about what to do next. And there's quite a few heuristic rule sets that we can use from experience. And that, if your computation over a heuristic rule set, you know, again, Yosha got really close to, to my computation is a sequence of choices guided by a set of rules. And that sequence of choices is a physical process doing the kajunk, kajunk, kajunk making a choice, a choice, a choice. And in that sense, I think Mm -hmm. Josiah Bach picked up on it. And you can do computation on a heuristic rule set and do amazing things, because that allows you to break out of the formal world and explore the physical world around us.
0: Could you just give me an example of computation using a heuristic rule set? Like, like
1: cooking a recipe yeah, um making up a recipe maybe trying something different. Maybe you know you have a recipe and you don't have all the ingredients in your cupboard. So there's substitutions and you go, well, you know, I can do this instead of butter or I can do this instead of whatever. It's not a formal decision, but you know from experience, that, that it works, and so you you plug that into your recipe, and you get something new. Um, so, am,
0: is is the embodied me the computational system, or is my mind the computational system?
1: Well, I have to say, you. Okay. <laughs> not not just you, but it, you're an extended. You're part of an extended uh, collective intelligence too. So, not only are you. Um, you're you're a symphony orchestra of intelligence conscious agents uh-huh. uh, i think mark Solms talks like that that we're not just one and our, i would say your sense of self is the conductor that, that's leading it all so but then you are in turn part of a larger collective intelligence which is, includes in your family your community society your culture um so
0: so th- so that heuristic has has developed out of all of those relationships and history and communication and study in this whole group has developed this heuristic that makes it possible for me to make substitutions when I'm trying to develop a new recipe because I don't have the right material. So, is that it?
1: Oh, okay. I'll. I'll, I'll... I'll be content with that. Okay. <laughs> but how, you know, how did Galileo know to make a telescope? You know, they had eyeglasses. They they had lens makers and they made glasses, I think, going back to maybe 13th century. And so, but, and people had played around with lenses, you know, and they put putting up and, oh, yeah, wow. Why why did Galileo, when he saw that go, "Oh, I see a telescope. Um, there's no formal reason why he would have done that, but there's part of him out of curiosity. Again, mm-hmm. curiosity melds with heuristic arguments. there's there's a connection there I haven't quite explored. And so he started asking questions and then he probed. And I'm not sure if he had workers do it or, but they ended up making an astronomical grade telescope. And he ended up having a side business making astronomical grade telescopes. How he got there, I don't know, but he asked questions and he saw something and, and you stumble forward by guess and try and see if this works. And then so that discovery process is quite of a computation by heuristic arguments. That's one way I look at it. But things get fuzzy, and so so I'm worried about this discussion wandering off because a lot of these threads end up getting like little rabbit trails that then all of a sudden just disappear in the in the brush.
0: Well, I I have that. I mean, I I know where we're headed on that, so we can move forward you were you're you you were talking about undecidability
1: mm-hmm. and so, um, yeah one of the first um, in the uh, that series on, on YouTube the next big one we see was uh, Bertrand's Russell's or Russell's paradox um, Frege had done a lot of work with with languages and the mathematical logical structure of language. And he'd become fascinated back in those days that it was possible maybe to put mathematics on a purely formal system, starting with math logic and set theory, and then uh, Piano's axioms of arithmetic. There was this belief uh, a century ago that maybe we could take all of mathematics and just starting from math logic, step formally all the way up that we could discover all mathematics formally just by following rules. And uh, Russell and uh, Whitehead took that up. But along the way, okay, back up. One of the challenges In that is how do you how do you prove one plus one equals two? Well, you have to define some notion of one and what some notion of two based on set theory and and just logic. Hopefully, I got an error message. It says the connection intermittent. And so this notion of collection of sets. So two might be the set of all sets that have two elements. So the set of sets and sets of sets of collections was kind of a question, I think, at that point. And Frege had had sent Russell uh, an update, a letter about his new book. Again, my history's a bit fuzzy at this point. And Russell had responded, well, what about the set of all sets that don't contain themselves as members? Are they members of that set? So the set of all pianos is not a piano. You can ask that, okay. The set of all stamp collections, well, that is a stamp collection. So in that case, the set of all sets contains itself. But then you ask about this paradox that Russell pointed out, and now you're stuck. And it could have apparently really devastated Frank because I I remember history, he withdrew publication of his book. Uh, And I can't imagine today why we would get all upset about it. Um, It really stumped uh, Russell and Whitehead. I I believe Whitehead was Russell's thesis advisor or mentor. And they were both mathematicians at that point. they thought they could get away with it by just finding some kind of types or classes, which so things that there were things that you couldn't make sets out of. So they saw set out on a, a journey to create all math from um, starting from logic, and that that's, was published as the Principia Mathematica. They got three books into it, three volumes, you know, thousands of pages, and that's about the time Gödel came out with his incompleteness theorem, and then they realized their their project to reduce math to a f- one formal system was was doomed to failure and they gave up and they both left mathematics and became philosophers. That's probably the short story. Uh, but again, I think um, Russell's paradox is related to, they call it the Barber paradox Uh, The the barber shaves everyone who doesn't shave themselves in town. So who shaves the barber? Again, it it leaves me scratching my head. You haven't proved anything just by throwing a paradox. And you can add rules. Like one of them, they say, well, the barber happens to be a woman. So now you've just solved your paradox. or we've just passed a new rule that the barber can shave himself where the barber doesn't have to shave. So there's ways out of it. You can get to a paradox and then you can step outside in some sense. And then, okay, then there's a solution. And then, then this gets me pondering all back to the decidability. How do you know what truth is? You we're saying that you can't decide if something's true or not within the system, but we can step outside and ask questions. So then I ponder, well, what does it mean to be true in the first place? And this gets me off in a whole other direction. Are you Are you okay? Am I? Have you flown elsewhere? Oh, yeah, the absolutely.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm doing great. I've got. I've just got lots of notes here about things I would like to talk about, but I don't want to derail you. <laughs>
1: So yeah, I I like to go for hikes and I think about this stuff when I'm hiking and I I just, I'll go for half an hour and in my mind I'll just finally kick out of gear. Uh, So clearly we have the ability to step outside and look and ask questions. So it's one of my conclusions that you need to pay attention to Gödel's incompleteness isn't so much a statement about math and formal systems as a statement about you us and somehow our ability to ask questions, but our ability to ask questions comes with the language we use. So here comes that thing about language again. And uh, ah, okay. Let me take, take a breath.
0: <laughs> yeah. So our ability okay. to ask questions has to be based on what language we use, and then we get come up against this question of, what do we mean by
1: language? Mm-hmm. so now I'll get back to when I was thinking about trying to explain the halting problem well I have to explain what a Turing machine is and then I was looking at some videos trying to see if there was something on YouTube that did a good job and I didn't find anyone any that thought actually got the got it right and the problem is is they always talk about Turing machines running programs and that doesn't work. They recognize or accept a language. And so the only way I felt I could really explain Turing machines in depth enough, I would have to go back and describe what a language is and what it means. Um so Turing machines, they usually say, Well, the you know, you have the read head and the tape. I'll play out. Here. Your audience is is usually... You have a very sophisticated audience, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. But they always point to the tape as being the program. Not necessarily. You can create a Turing machine all sorts of ways. The the program could be in the tape head. And the data input and output could be the, the tape. Or the program could be mixed in with the data and output on the tape. Or the program could be in the tape head but based on a bunch of index cards so that anyway the notion of program doesn't translate to Turing machines in any useful way that that you could repeat so I thought okay let's just throw it out go back a language so we're going to go introductory textbook stuff you have an alphabet of symbols. It could be ones and zeros. It could be ABC. It could be hieroglyphics. Um, and that is a, it's a set. You have it. Now you create sentences, which are just sequences of these symbols. Okay, we're okay there. And mm-hmm. oftentimes you'll see ones and zeros used because it turns out whatever creative set of symbols you have and know however big your alphabet is you can mathematically always show that it's equivalent to a zero and one alphabet so you have these sentences which are just ordered sequences of symbols from the alphabet now you have and in terms of computation there's a computational system which is could be a state machine could be a lot of things that You input that string, and each time it looks at a symbol, the computational system does something. It makes a choice. It changes its configuration, it changes its orientation. So it doesn't have to be ones and zeros, um, and the computational system doesn't have to just be counting up and down. It could be changing orientation, it could be changing shape, it could be changing color, combinations. As long as as the states that it jumps between are distinct and stable enough. And the rule set tells you as it looks at each symbol, it does something due do based on where it's at and what the symbol is. Computational systems are defined partly, they have a start state and they have an end state. Or, um, and if the sequence of string symbols it starts at the start state and and it's like, you know, the Pac-Man gobbles up the symbols, and it ends in a stop state. Then it says it's accepted it. If it goes off in some crazy loop and never finishes, that would be, that would be saying it doesn't halt. So not halting is, that's a turing machine but it's simple things like state machines uh, they only make one transition per symbol and if they end in the stop state then it's accepted if it doesn't it's rejected and now you have a sing you have strings uh, am i going too fast no
0: uh-uh.
1: okay so you have the alphabet you can make up strings they're ordered you can all sorts of strings and then the language a language is a set of all strings or words, if you want to say, use that term, that the computational structure accepts. So now the language is a reflection of the computational structure because all what you want true statements, defined true by ending in the stop state, form the language. Could you so repeat the that last
0: one? Of... Repeat the last sentence.
1: Okay. The language is the set of all sequences of symbols. Right. That the computational structure accepts, accepts or uh-huh. recognizes.
0: Right. And then you said something. I lost the last piece.
1: So that means the language is a reflection of what the computational structure considers true.
0: Okay, repeat that. The language is a reflection of what the computational structure-
1: Is true, decides.
0: What the computational structure decides is true.
1: Right. And when you like, say
0: reflection, can you, can you give me another word for reflection or description of what you mean? All, by the, all the,
1: okay. The textbook, it says, I'll say words, okay. You have alphabet of symbols and you write words. And the words are true or false, whether depending on whether the computational structure that accepts them or doesn't. The language is the set of all words now that they are accepted, which means all the words in the language are true statements. So if you look at the language, it's telling you something about the computational structure itself.
0: Because computational systems... this is why the
1: large language...
0: Computational systems don't run programs. They accept a language. Right? You said that at the beginning. And that's the same thing here. That the language is a reflection of what the computational structure decides is true, what the computational structure accepts. Basically, it decides it's true. It accepts it. It, um, if I'm, if I'm the computational structure and I'm trying to modify a recipe based on a heuristic, that that heuristic is developed, you know, by the symphony of, of other individuals and history and so forth, with which I've interacted and, um, the, the the symbols that I put into that recipe might not be words in this case, but it might be like, well, yeah, it would be words, but, but they would be choices different than the choices that were in the recipe. I have to add, I have to change, I have to switch out symbols. So what you find out then is um, the computational structure, decides what is true based on what works, right? I mean, if the recipe works, then those were true words. Right. So if the recipe works, then, then, no, then the language
1: you was correct? No, you've invented a new language. You've just discovered that you could replace certain symbols with new symbols.
0: Ah, okay, 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 I get it, I get it.
1: That can recognize even more stuff. So
0: whether or not a a language is... um... So I've invented a new language. Okay, that helps. I'm going to have to think that through for a while,
1: but... Yes, you probably have to think through it a lot, because I'm still thinking through it. This ties into Perry Marshall's question, where does new code come from? And this is how new code is generated. You you take a guess, and if it works, you now have a new rule set that you can add as an axiom to your old um, computational matrix. And you just expanded, but you just guessed. It wasn't a formal step of reasoning, but guessing is a computational process. That's what I'm I'm trying to get people to recognize. It can be anyway.
0: Well, it has something to do with, it has something to do with, now hear me out here. This is gonna take a little bit to explain, but it has something to do with um, interacting with the environment. And and the reason I say yeah. that is, you know, I've had a number of conversations with Michael Levin and he's always talking about these Xenobots that mm-hmm. are, um, they're, they're a bunch of frog skin cells that are put into a medium. And when they're put into the medium, I was saying to him, okay, so, N- but he says, why is it that they form up into this new living being? that has a shape and a structure and uh, a set of purposes that are distinct and functional, even though there's no new DNA and that there's no evolutionary history for this new thing. So where does it come from? Where did that information come from to make this thing? And, And I said, well, you have to consider necessity, because after all, they're, not, they're no longer doing what they were meant to do, or, you know, like he wouldn't like that language, but they're no longer skin cells. So they have, in order to live, they have to do this thing. And he said, well, no, he said, they'd have a lot of other choices. They could just become a flat sheet of, of skin cells and, and they would still stay alive in this medium. So, but they make a choice of getting together and having motility and reusing their functions, um, their parts to create new functions and i think it has to do with something to do with the training of the environment in the same way that um, we learn on a human level on a social level we learn based on experience and the experience builds memory and somehow i think this is all attached to memory and habit and pattern and I haven't worked this out in my head yet but I do think that there's something about memory and habit and pattern that work together when when you're pushing against the future when you're like um, you said guessing is a computational process you you have to push and see if it fits reality and if it does then it kind of locks into place. And if it doesn't fit reality, you have to regroup and try something else.
1: Yeah. Or you just die. Or you just die. Yeah. That would be a question on his yeah. Xenobots. You know, some of them go on and, and do, but do all of them or do some of them just die? Uh, that would yeah. be a question I might ask. Yeah. something to look up. Um, yeah, that It's not strictly is, utilitarian. Yes, it, it's it's is, not
0: just strictly what works. But it, but it is something about...
1: No, there's something else. Yeah.
0: Aligning with reality. There's something about aligning with reality.
1: As impressive as DNA is, in terms of information storage, it can't code for everything. And so what the cells are doing at, at the level Michael Levin is working on is already beyond what you can simply encode for at the DNA level. And the only way I could explain to that is that what DNA does is, is it codes for learning, not necessarily the final form. And so the cells are programmed to explore structure space in a certain, you know, this guess is better than that guess, and then it moves forward. Um. And. If I was to pursue that, I would I would look more towards uh, the DNA codes for learning, not necessarily for structure. And then it explores the structure, spaces around it, and and that's what we see happening. That's that's the intelligence that's going on. That's what's been encoded for.
0: Well, yeah, this Anna Soto has done a lot of um, research on this kind of thing, and. There are certain cells that undifferentiated cells that depending on the matrix in which they're growing will either become a neuronal cell or they will become a muscle cell. Mm -hmm. So if they're in a rigid matrix, they're more they they become like a muscle. If they're in a more fluid matrix, they become more like a neuron. I, I might have the I might have the details wrong, but the idea is that. Depending on what they're in, what they're pushing up against, sort of, they become a different kind of a cell, and uh, mm. so it, it is a it's a learning. It's like things are moving in and learning what they're meant to be. I, I mean, I think telos. You have to have telos
1: in there. I mean, there's no right. there's no other. I know that's what I mean. That's that's the learning algorithm. Yeah, you can't have a learning algorithm if you don't have something that you're trying to learn to. And so, you know, it's a, it's a telos of a, of, a, of a form. You know, I don't want to make too much of but it, but the telos is somehow encoded into the DNA, so that when the cells start learning and growing and changing, somehow that goal is already there that they're going to try and random walk their way to it, because something is saying, okay, this is a better choice than that one. Okay, that this choice would be better than that one. And then you eventually get to your goal.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So and, yeah and, so that's, and that's got value baked into it, right? Right from the get-go. Something has to be better than something else. So you have to have good as a value before anything works.
1: Right. And the other thing that I see is that if a cell is going to be growing like that, it has to be aware of its neighbors. Yep. And so there's already you have this notion of content consciousness i mean it's not what we think of it but if you just do a a stripped down mathematical or abstract for something to grow like that in in a cooperative behavior with other cells next to it it has to have some way of knowing what everybody else is doing and there has to be some kind of communication going back and forth this that's more than just nearest neighbor so there's a, a group behavior happening, which all of the cells are somehow aware of.
0: Isn't that true also at the uh, particle level, though? Because particles will do the same thing where they, if they're if they're pushed into a, a small space, they'll they'll somehow sense the way in which each one can have maximum freedom.
1: Right, and that's that's a. The patterns look the same but i think the underlying mechanism is, is different
0: okay
1: and so that's something i still wrestle with is how how do i explain computation whatever the cells are doing it, it is computational you know a sequence of choices based on a set of rules and in, with inputs and outputs um, Consciousness just means that you're aware of your environment. It could just be as simple as surface tension or electrical field gradients or, you know, concentration levels, chemicals, uh, could be very crude. The key of the lock, the lock is only, its universe of consciousness is the key. Um, Then you need agency. The cells need to act back on its environment so that everybody else knows what it's doing. It can change its structure and, and move it about. So you have know, computation, consciousness, and agency is already at the cell level. But I don't think a rock qualifies as any of that. But i would be tough for me to try and articulate that at the moment. But I'm sure there's a difference if I spent time with it.
0: Well, I mean, the problem with a lock is that in order to know whether or not it's going to act back on its environment, there has to be an outside agent. <clears throat> Someone has to insert the key into the lock. When, when you insert the key, then, then you find out whether or not, at, at that point, the the structure of the lock itself is acting back on the environment, but it's... right but it requires, this, yeah, so it requires life, this vertical causation to come
1: in with the key. <laughs> and then you start realizing computation is is a group phenomena. You know, life exists because it's, you, you can't a- analyze a computational system in isolation because there's always input and output. Even though the simple notion of a string of symbols somebody's inputting something, you know, there's there's, there's processes implied just by talking about computation in the first place. And so where did the key come? Somebody put the key in or something or, and who decided? And so what starts out as a simple question about, is a lock and key mechanism, computational aware agency. Next thing you know, you're talking about life universe and everything.
0: Well, just um, today, I was, I was to listening to a I was listening to a video today that Michael Levin put up on his academic channel where he's having a conversation with Mark Solms and Richard Watson.
1: Uh, and I haven't done, listened to
0: that one yet. He's done several conversations with Richard Watson. I really like that guy. He's got a really interesting way of asking questions. The whole first half hour is Mark Solms talking because he apparently likes to talk. <laughs> But at minute 30, from 30 to 40, Richard Watson starts asking questions. And the questions he's asking are questions that it's difficult for him to ask because it really the kind of questions that get you in trouble in the science realm. And he's asking these questions about how is it that there seems to be some kind of loop of causality? It's not all just from the bottom up. That there is some causality that comes in from another layer up. But it's very hard for him to get to the place where he'll say the layer up. So he talks at first about all the layers down here. But then he starts kind of indicating, yeah, but then, you know, these these layers here are having an effect on this. And so that, you know, there must be some layer up. Anyway, it's really cool the way he kind of thinks his way through it.
1: Yeah, I don't understand the, the reluctance because, in the theory of computation, that's just like, well, okay, yeah, we do that all the time. There's <laughs> no big deal. So we'll get to that if we keep going. Yeah. Okay. Uh,
0: well, let's let's keep going.
1: Okay. So, are are, are we okay with the language being a, a co- the collection of all the true state true words? Let's say. And, you know, and you can build up more complicated sentences by adding, you know, uh, sentences together. So uh, there's, that's part of the formal nature of, of, of languages. It's, they call them well-formed formulas. And so if you have two words which are true, there's rules like, you know, ors or concatenation or different rules that you can take sentences together and make longer sentences. Which then, of course, will be true or false. And so that allows starting from a certain set of sentences, you can then primitive, you know, basis kind of, you can create longer sentences, more complicated words and stuff. All this is in the encapsulated in this thing called the language. And we can decide if something's true or not, if formally the computational system recognizes that there's a machine to that will go through an algorithm or some process that will decide whether it's true or false. Now, the large language models, and I think there's some debate whether they're actually thinking or not. If you think of language as a collection of all true statements and true sentences, true paragraphs, then if you go out and have a a program that runs through all these sentences in the language and gives a prompt, based on a prompt, gives an answer based on statistical or probabilistic modeling of all the sentences, then it is, in a sense, reflecting a computational process. It's a set of rules. Okay, I'm going to, based on probability here or a coefficient there or whatever weight go through all the sentences and create a response based on all the true sentences. The large language models are a form of computation, but they're looking at language because language should be truth to begin with. Language should encompass true statements. So if you make a response based on parsing a bunch of language true statements, you should get a true statement. Uh.
0: Yeah, but that's but that's the whole problem. Yeah, because it's looking at all the garbage that's been pumped out there on the internet for years, and and yeah.
1: so yeah, the way you not hack, looking at truth. The way to hack large language models is to flood the the learning set with false statements, because the large language models can't step outside like we can and observe the real universe. In a sense, they are running a program. They are intelligent, in, you know, in a loose sense. But they 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 don't have the ability to step outside and say, "No, that doesn't work." But it then it gets into the whole alignment question. And uh, I don't know if this is the time to start on that or not.
0: The the Uh, question of language?
1: Alignment. Alignment. How do we align AI to human?
0: Well, okay, before we get to alignment, could we just go back to the one question right at the beginning? Um, When he says um, there is no deeper truth than proof that proof is the deepest truth that you can have. So how right. does that fit in with this whole thing? Because it seems to me that's pretty important if we're gonna look at the alignment question.
1: Well, partly um, he's, he's pointing out what is true or not is, is a language dependent thing. Um, if you just look at the universe, it is. If you wanna talk about truth and what's true and what's false, requires a language which allows you to talk about that. And language and computation are and truth are are tied together. Um, if you want to go that route. Um,
0: well I I was thinking more along the lines of <clears throat> If I say there is no deeper truth than proof, then is that the same thing as saying that things are only true if they can be proven to be true? Or is it saying something different?
1: I think, no, I wouldn't say that because proof is always a formal process Okay, But we're not bound by formal processes. We can step out of that and look at the universe around us and say, okay, this is true because we observe it to be true. And we create a model now, a new formal model in which that that happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, see, this is where I I fear to tread.
0: Okay, well... Um, so what I'm hearing from you is the, the jury is still out on whether Yoshibak is correct when he says that.
1: My, my sense is it is. <laughs> there are some pieces missing yet that um, I think we'll get there.
0: Okay. So then you wanted to talk about the alignment
1: question. A little bit. Um, since a computational systems recognize languages, um, and if we say all the sentences that are true by the computational system are words, then a language is a collection of words and sentences. Now, a proof you know, is a deduction. Formally, a deduction is just a sequence of sentences, well-formed formulas within the language that all connect together, and the final sentence is what you're trying to prove so a proof is a story in a formal language and now it's it's got me gone on the direction of, of the archetypes
0: that's what popped into my head
1: yeah exactly so if <clears throat> archetypes are a proof in a in a non-formal language very story with a punchline so this is why I wanted to get away from the notion of program and talk about languages because now all of a sudden a lot of these analogies start to seem to make sense more um and speaking as you know as a Christian we have this notion that truth and language are tied together and if you take computation as foundational you know I'm, I'm a lot of people argue you know okay i'm not going to go out on a limb on that but if you do that gives you a connection between language and truth and all of a sudden now you can get an ought from it is not saying just you know asking for a friend but that's one of the reasons to think about it that way that's one things that comes out But then you say, well, formal languages aren't enough, you know, math or whatever. One of the things I'm hoping to explore later is my little robo-dog project is you can create computational systems that actually recognize or accept different languages all simultaneously. Um, So we don't talk about that. And so this is just a little side The reason turing machines i think get all of the attention is because people have proved all sorts of theorems about them and so you can come up with all sorts of novel crazy mixed up computational structures and computation is a physical process with some physical structure which is doing something but how do you prove theorems on all these crazy things? Well, all you have to do is show that whatever you're doing is equivalent to a Turing machine, then you can take all the mathematical results and apply them to whatever it is you're doing. So uh, I've heard jokes about the uh, Atlanta Airport, that every flight from the south goes to the Atlanta Airport first. And so like, Turing machine gets all the attention because that's where everyone goes before they go elsewhere theoretically, but that doesn't mean there isn't all all this other crazy stuff out there. And a lot of the crazy stuff has advantages that a a Turing machine doesn't. A Turing machine is huge. I mean, even the simple things get, it blows up. But you can compress a lot of computational structures down into clever mix and match stuff. And so what I'm looking at is, is nested stack machines and the only way i can explain that is imagine a chess game checkers game you have two players and they play the two checker pieces by the rules now what happens if you add two more players except these new players play by a different set of rules they might play patterns so the checkers move around and then the next players they, they look at patterns and then they move the whole checkers board based on patterns. And maybe you have another set of players which have a different set of rules that then they play the same pieces by yet another set. So you can imagine you could do some really crazy stuff that way. And that's what comes out of uh, the push down stack, I mean, nested stack um, automata or stack machines. is you can recognize three different multiple languages all at the same time. Each language telling to what different layer in the computational structure what to do. And each part of the language is a different rule set. And, all of a sudden, and now you have your top-down um, causality. You have your bottom-up causality. You have a system that can rewrite its own code on the fly while it's running. And you can have one of these layers is the quote unquote curiosity, you know, hold my beer layer, which will just randomly, hey, I want to try something. This just might work until something else. Am I okay? I'm not Yeah, ready.
0: yeah. I mean, there's so many questions in my mind. So so with, with the, all these different checker players, right? We have team A, team B, team C. Um, team A is playing by one set of rules. You have A1 and A A2. Team B is playing by another set of rules, B1 and B2. So, so A1 plays by his set of rules and then B1 has to play based on his rules, but he's playing from the board that A1 has just changed. Right. Right. And then C1 comes in and he's looking at a board that both of them have changed, but he's using a different set of rules. Is that, do I have it right? Right. Okay. So it's exactly like what we used to do once in a while where, um, there's a lot of different iterations of this in in the art community, but sometimes we would have a group of artists take one artist would start a painting and then she would send it to the next artist and then they would paint on it and then they'd send it to the next artist and they would paint on it. And, and then it would come back around and come back around several times. And then you'd end up with a painting that was so wildly creative something that none of the individual artists would have ever produced, right? But each one is operating with their own heuristic, their own set of rules, their own way of looking at things, their own perspective into this painting. And then is it kind of the same thing?
1: Exactly. Yeah, when I was in college, there was dorms long, long time ago. There was several uh, guys who would get in the blackboards and they would play this story. They each take a bit of the story and draw something on the board at town. Mm-hmm. And they would keep making this rounds where they would keep adding to the story, and the, and the, yeah, it was just you could just sit there and watch it. It was it was fun to watch how the story grew as each person added to it or changed it. And wow. yeah, well, Dungeons and Dragons is kind of like that too, the, with the way people play it. Yeah, I've
0: never played, but but, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, but you can play that
1: game computationally. And then now you have three different languages woven into the same source code. And and this Mm -hmm. is where I'm fascinated. And this is why I want to play with this hardware project. Because I don't know how it's going to work out. How do you have, in my case, three different layers, each recognizing different words in your programming language? so you have this source code that is more complicated than just you know normal rules because different words will play out at different levels of of the processing
0: yeah i mean it 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 seems like this is exactly why determinism absolutely cannot be a thing because in one sense, all 8 billion people on the planet are each operating by a different set of rules, but we're all interacting with the same platform. So, <laughs> you know, it's. Uh...
1: Well, yeah, if the world universe was deterministic, you couldn't have cooperative behavior. So, yeah, but, I
0: mean, we're all playing the same game, but we each have our own set of rules. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we have many nested sets of rules. We have a personal set of rules we have a family set of rules we have a communal set of rules we have a national set of rules and each person is nested inside all those rules and then they're playing the same game with all these other people who are operating on other rules you know yeah. I want to see the program that manages all
1: that it's yeah it's all can be modeled computationally but I um, I think people don't look at it as in the abstract sense and they don't see how complex it can actually be because all they look at is their their desktop or their laptop or the smartphone and programming languages, and that's as far as they look into it.
0: Well, I'm wondering if if uh if we wanted to talk about the alignment problem, I wonder if we want to maybe want to have a separate session for that.
1: Um Well, well, I think I can just Put the punchline here in the end. Okay. Okay. And, uh, it's a, a science fiction story. You know, someone builds the first AGI, and the question is, how do you align it? How do you bring? You have to raise it as a child, as some people are noting. You know, how do you how do you express emotional um, joy? How do you share what we value as humans with the machine? Well, you need a language to do that. But how? the question was, how do you do it when all you have is formal languages to work with? How do you express things that we experience emotionally? And then that's where I went off on this the symphony of choices. That um, you can have a computational system that recognizes multiple languages all at the same time now you can have an orchestra of languages and you can create a symphony out of that in the right way. So that's where natural language can be built up by compounding formal languages. And that's one of the things that the, the nested stack machine is uh, apparently is a candidate for parsing natural languages because you can break up natural language into a symphony of single languages, which is what Frege, this is what I picked up when I was reading Frege, was what he was doing as he was looking at natural language and he was parsing out what it is we do that gives it a logical structure. So the fact that we can create a word problem in natural language is telling you that there is a structure, a strand, a thread, in a braid of threads that is logical, is formal. Frege pulled that out and published it, gave it a, um, an identity also. But we have learning. There's languages of learning and training. So if you look at faster, slower, a little bit more, those are training, learning words. Um, it's it's a fun game. I, I'm just, I'm exploring. I don't know where it'll go. Mm-hmm. But that's, I think how you get alignment is you um, uh, create a, a symphony of languages that now can express something for uh, logically, I mean, emotionally, even though it's a collection of formal languages. And I'll get some flack for that one.
0: Well, no, it's not, it's not too dissimilar from what Mark Solms is talking about when he is trying to explain his theory of how... Consciousness arose from um, very simple decision making at the brainstem level, even before the um, other hemispheres of the brain. Yeah. Before the right why, hemisphere yeah, of the I, brain arose. So, so it it's like um, hotter or colder, faster or slower things, decisions that have to be made just to stay alive. Even if it's just a cell, how does it stay right. alive? It's, it's like therm, almost like a thermostat. Um, But um, yeah, it's, so it's not too dissimilar to that. I don't know that I agree with his assessment, but I mean, it is interesting
1: to think about. Well, I really like his work because I think it, it dovetails a lot with the way I'm approaching it though I'm coming at it from a completely different direction. It seems yeah. like there's a Venn diagram of intersections that's yeah. looking interesting.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, so you'll enjoy that conversation then with Solms and Richard Watson and Michael Levin, because Richard Watson is, I, I really would love to talk to him. I'm going to try to lean on Michael Levin and see if he'll give me Richard Watson's information so I can talk to him. <clears throat> Because he's got a very interesting mind. Speaking of which, my mind is kind of fried right now, so I'm Still thinking maybe it's a good time to stop and uh, and we can pick it up in the future with with whatever the next thing is. Okay. This was really good, though. <clears throat>
1: Hopefully, this works out good enough and not too scrambled up, fragmented. No, I I,
0: uh, <clears throat> I think we got out a lot, a lot out of it, um, and. I thank you for thinking things through to such an extent that you could find a through line here.
1: But I'm still confused myself.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, these are questions that go deeper than, you know, I mean, most people aren't thinking about these things because once you start really thinking about them, they have implications that are uncomfortable for a lot of people. So, yeah,
1: so, yeah I would say Gödel's Incompleteness through look at it more like a Buddhist Cohen. It's not something you have an answer to. It's something that you keep engaging with and forcing you to think about things deeper.
0: Well, I mean, that's exactly what Jesus does with the parables, right?
1: Right. Well, the, the parables parable. are codes. Yeah, you know? yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much and look well, forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, too. Okay. Take
1: care. Bye. Bye-bye.